or are you absolute legends? Welcome back to another episode of A Need to Read. Today's episode, I'm going to be discussing the book Humankind by Rutger Bregman. This book has actually changed the way that I look at humanity and shock, surprise, shock, horror. I have changed the way that I look at something through reading a book, but that is the power of it. And he provides a pretty compelling bunch of evidence to make you look at humanity through a less pessimistic lens. And a pessimistic lens is the way that I've been looking at humanity for quite a while. So he's done a very good job of that. Before we get into the book and why it's just so good and why you should probably read it or definitely hand it out to your pessimistic mates, I just want to talk about the sponsors of the show. Now, I Need to Read is made possible by Athletic Greens. I started taking Athletic Greens a couple of years ago when I came across them through a podcast. Now, I'm lucky enough to say that they support my podcast. I started, really, because I was a bit lazy. I don't like vegetables too much. And I just wanted to have some kind of nutritional insurance that meant that I didn't have to feel so guilty if I missed my vegetables for two or three days in a row. I have since grown up and I now eat my vegetables, but I'm still taking Athletic Greens because it makes me feel good. And let's face it, there's just no way that me putting a few peppers or a few pieces of broccoli with my dinner is ever really going to provide me with the nutrients that I need. And that's where Athletic Greens step in. There are 75 whole food sourced ingredients that bring you all of the vitamins, minerals, probiotics, adaptogens that your body needs to support your gut and immune health. Now, as you know, I'm all for little daily habits that you can do to make your life a little bit easier. And Athletic Greens is just that. It is one shake. You take it in the morning on an empty stomach, it will leave you feeling better throughout the day and it costs you less than a cup of coffee. So to make it easy for you, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune support and vitamin D, five free travel packs for your first purchase and all you've got to do is via athleticgreens.com forward slash a need to read. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash a need to read to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And here's another thing you don't have to do every day to make your life better, but you just do it once a week and it's called therapy. Therapy has been profoundly helpful for me. I am such a better person since going to therapy and I actually truly mean that. I think it's a a weird thing to be able to say that you are a better person, but the way that I handle my emotions, the way that I navigate conversations, the way that I'm able to communicate my emotions has just shot through the roof since going to therapy and I don't see why anyone would be any different. For the most part, therapy can be profoundly helpful, especially if you're struggling with your mental health at the moment. Now, if you're one of those people, all you've got to do is head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read, fill out a five or 10 minute questionnaire and be matched with a therapist within 48 hours. That's pretty quick to get yourself seen by a therapist. And also, it's a bit cheaper than standard face to face as well. On top of that, you get 10% off your first month. Head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. That's betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. And that'll get you going. Both of those links are in the description. There's a link to sign up to emails in the description as well. But let's kick it off. Let's talk about why humans aren't as bad as I had previously thought they were. Now, I really did think that most people deep down were pieces of shit before. And I'm sorry for you listening to that thinking, well, I'm not one. At the time, I probably would have thought that you were no different to anyone else in the world. And when I had a conversation with Mo Gaudat, I can't remember what the episode is and I can't remember when it was, but he said to me that most people are decent. And I really disagreed with him at the time. I'd been walking around Clapham Common every morning for about three months, seeing people on their phones, people with a little miserable face on. And I just 
fell prey to what Daniel Kahneman calls a non-regressive prediction. Um, a non-regressive prediction is where you take a very small amount of evidence and you apply it on a grand scale. It's not good. It's a bias that we fall prey to in our minds and we can't really help it unless we're aware of it and we can kind of catch ourselves before it's too late. This is one of those times where it was too late for me. I'd already fallen prey to it. So when he said that, I disagreed with him. Now I had the evidence sufficiently presented to me to realise that I have or had mean world syndrome. A guy called George Gerbner came up with this idea and it's essentially that the like the symptoms of it are cynicism, misanthropy and pessimism. And apparently people who follow the news very closely fall prey to it quite a lot because there well there are multiple studies that suggest that watching the news is not good for your mental health. And a few years ago, people in about 30 different countries were asked a question of, do you think the world is getting better, staying the same, or getting worse? And in every country, from Russia to Canada, Mexico to Hungary, most people seem to think that things are getting worse. But really, that's actually not how things are going. You may be surprised to hear this, but over the last several decades, extreme poverty, victims of war, child mortality... Crime, famine, child labour, deaths in natural disasters, plane crashes, it's all plummeted. We are living in the richest, safest and healthiest era ever. This is, quite literally, the best it's ever been. But we're tricked, we're duped, we're conned by the news because they just show us the whole world's news, any natural disaster, anything bad that happens, spotlight is straight on it. And it's very rarely the good news that makes the news. And that's a bit of a shame. And I'm not here to say let's just focus on the positives in life because I don't think that's very good either. But to acknowledge both and to look at things rationally and to say, well, as far as things are going, in terms of progress and pretty much everything is better right now than it ever has been. Maybe mental health induced by social media is higher because it didn't exist back then but as far as things are going from a rational perspective things are going all right in the world so yeah i think i had a bit of mean world syndrome and that's to do with the media and there's a story about the media in this book um cast your mind back you might remember hurricane katrina it's in like 2005 and basically a, a lot of people in new orleans i'm not going to give you the statistics and numbers because i don't know them but a lot of people in new orleans were displaced from their homes and about 25,000 of them were moved into a sports stadium. And in that sports stadium, there are lots of reports of just bad stuff going down. Apparently, two babies had their throats slit. Two people were shot. Um, people were getting raped and abused. Basically, the things you wouldn't like to imagine, that's what the media was saying was going on in New Orleans in this stadium. But as it turned out, afterwards, as an investigation went into it, it said that there were two incidents where there was a loud bang in the stadium where people had claimed to have been shot or people had said that there was a shooting. It was actually an oil, um, gas oxygen tank. Got there in the end. It was actually an oxygen tank that had exploded. And there were only two deaths out of those 25,000 people in there. One was suicide and one was natural causes. No one had been shot. No one had been raped. No babies had had their throat slits. But the media had misreported on it. I don't know how this happens and I'd love to think that it isn't an urge for attention to your particular news source but 
I, I could, you'll never be sure. It's, it's just important that it happens and it happens a lot and there's a lot of misinformation. So first way that you can think the world is a better place is to acknowledge the reality that right now, progress wise, everything is pretty safe for the most part, or at least it's safer than it ever has been. And that's an important thing. I think the idea that we're ever going to live in a utopia is kind of like far-fetched, but his other book, Utopia for Realists, presents quite a solid base for that to happen and, and some good ideas in how we can make that happen. But it's a good idea to kind of understand where the two camps lie when it comes to your view on humanity and which ideal you might attach to. If you attach to any, because you don't have to, we don't have to fit in these boxes, you could actually have no opinion on this and you'd still have quite a happy life, I'm sure of it. But there are two philosophers who are quite influential in the way that we look at the world. One is called Thomas Hobbes and the other one is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. They were alive about 100 years apart, so they never actually got to go head to head in a debate. But Thomas Hobbes saw societies as pretty much divided by catastrophes and wars and, and tried to offer a, a, like a road to peace. Um, and he thinks that we should submit to some kind of authoritative body and just let them enforce the laws and revolt and resolve conflicts for us. Basically saying that humans on their own cannot manage and they need to be managed. Whereas Jean-Jacques Rousseau thought the opposite. He thought that societies are just divided by inequality and essentially that's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Society will have a downfall because people are unequal. He thinks the private ownership of land is kind of what fucked our world up. I don't really know if I agree with him. I've bought his book because I want to I have a look into that idea a little bit further just to see if I can solidify myself into one of those camps. I'm going to choose Rousseau first because it seems like a better idea. But there is a theory that comes from Thomas Hobbes that most societies in the world at the moment seem to subscribe to politically and just generally as like part of their philosophy. And it's called veneer theory. It says that humanity and, and communities have a very thin veneer over them. That when catastrophe strikes, that veneer goes and people become kind of like beasts, just lawless reprobates. That's what the whole theory is. And that's why we need people like Boris Johnson running countries and stuff like that. So you can see, it doesn't really do us many favours. But really, that's not the case. If you think, think about the pandemic, sure, there has been divides in, in either camp of mask, no mask, vaccine, no vaccine, lockdown, no lockdown. But for the most part, people have been quite helpful. People were volunteering to go and like take medicine to old people, do shopping for old people. People, on the whole, stepped up and were pretty good to each other. But that's not how people would like you to see it. They'd like you to see that we live in a world full of division and that people are just terrible. And when I say people, I mean me from not long ago. And that sucks. And I am sorry that I've kind of may have influenced some people's thinking in that way. But obviously, you're all humans you can make up your own mind on things and I'm not trying to make you believe anything apart from that reading's good for you but here's a good way to look at look at this kind of theory within yourself and maybe you'll see that you have both sides of the coin within you because you can be good or you can be a piece of shit I think people are capable of both and there's a nice story that kind of highlights that it's of an old man who says to his grandson there's a fight going on inside me and it's a terrible fight between two wolves one is evil, angry, greedy, jealous, arrogant and cowardly. And the other is good, peaceful, loving, modest, generous, honest and trustworthy. And these two wolves are also fighting within you, inside every other person too. And the boy looks at his granddad and says, but which wolf will win? 
So the old man smiles and he says, the one you feed. And I think this is a very important thing to remember, is that we, as people, are very imperfect. If there is a scale of, of how imperfect you could be, we are right on the end of it. Everyone has, like, the capacity for greed or the capacity for jealousy or arrogance even. It doesn't often take much to make someone arrogant, you know. And people can be very peaceful. For the most part, people are peaceful walking around. People are generous. People can be very honest. There are a lot of people who are dishonest. There are some people who are trustworthy in some things and then they're untrustworthy in others. So we as humans have the capability to be good or bad. It really just depends on what day you catch us. Once you understand that about yourself and then can apply that to others, it means you're a little bit less judgmental because you understand, one, that like people are capable of a whole range of things day to day, let alone like throughout the span of their life, that could make you look at them differently. And your life is just a bit better if you don't do that, if you don't judge people so harshly if they make a mistake. It seems to be a better way of going about things because we are all imperfect and that is kind of what binds us together. Should I tell you what else binds us together? The fact that we're cooperative. We feel that evolution of, of humans has become from like survival of the fittest. We think we're the smartest, the strongest, and the best homo sapiens to ever roam the planet. But really, that's not the case. The Neanderthals have been found to have bigger brains than us. It's presumed that they were stronger than us as well. And we were alive at the same time, God knows how many thousands of years ago. But we're here now. And we've got iPhones and all of that stuff. Um, and they're not here. So why is that? Rutger Bregman put forward the kind of like hypothesis that it's survival of the friendliest, not survival of the fittest. And it's our cooperation that has kind of set us apart. This idea that hunter-gatherers only ever had like tribes of like 50 to 150 people and they never strayed from their group. It's not quite right. Like the origins of trade is through cooperation. I was reading a book called The Rational Optimist, which is... It's a little bit dense and, and maybe boring in places, but it's it's interesting to know because I think being a rational optimist is, is quite a good idea. And he talks about the origins of trade from like people who lived near the coastal towns would go inland and they would trade a few like barbs from stingrays in exchange for an axe. And that's how tools were kind of passed hand from tribe to tribe. They say that people in hunter-gatherer tribes actually met up to a thousand people in their life which is a far cry from the 150 people that the kind of story goes. So we are quite cooperative, and that's what set us apart. That's what means that we can work as teams and work towards goals and essentially further the human race. So that's one of the interesting arguments in the book. Another interesting thing that Rutger Bregman does in the book, he looks at a couple of psychological experiments, quite famous ones as well, where they're kind of in support of veneer theory. There was a guy called Stanley Milgram. He's quite a famous psychologist and he, he did some experiments after the World War because he was really interested in the Nazis and why they were so like, obedient. And this is an electric shock experiment. You've probably come across it if you read non-fiction books because it is in a lot of them. The experimentee or the subject of the experiment would sit in a chair and they'd be told to administer electric shocks in the room next to them to, to someone who they can't see. The electric shocks would get stronger 
and stronger and stronger up until the point that they were near deadly and they were like really, really painful and there were loud screams coming from the room next door. The screams weren't actually coming from a room next door, they were coming from a speaker in the corner of a room. But what Stanley Milgram wanted to see was just how far people would go with their obedience in response to authority. It's not really looked at in terms of the language that the experimenter used when sort of telling the, the subject of the experiment to administer these shocks. They think it's just like a direction. They think, oh, please, can you do this? Please, can you do this? But when you actually look at the language and listen to the recordings, which Rutger Bregman did, I haven't done, it's more like coercion and bullying than it ever is like an authority figure saying, please, can you do this or go and do this? Some of the words and phrases that they used was, you have no other choice, but you must go on. It's absolutely the essential that you continue and the experiment requires that you continue. And apparently, when you listen to the tapes, there is quite a gap in between them actually doing something. So the effect of being told what to do is actually instant disobedience, especially when it's sort of aimed towards causing pain on somebody else. But Stanley Milgram's results presented a different story and the way that he sort of packaged it up was that people will do anything you tell them to. And good science is replicable, right? Lots of people have tried to replicate Milgram's studies. Hasn't worked out so well for them. Hasn't supported the evidence. So Stanley Milgram, bad psychologist, even though really famous, obviously smarter than me. There was some kind of like unethical tone to his experiment. There's another psychologist he looked at called Zimbardo. Uh, you may have heard of the Stanford Prison Experiment. I studied it, I think, in sick form. I did about a year of psychology before I quit. Um, which I wish I didn't because, I mean, psychology is pretty interesting. But the Stanford Prison Experiment was run by this guy, Zimbardo, Philip Zimbardo. He is also one of the most famous psychologists in the world. And he's also quite unethical. As it turned out, this Stanford Prison Experiment that was meant to show that people given power abuse it was actually not the case. The people who had helped him with the experiment and him had gone around, they'd spoken to the guards and they'd pushed them into like creating these certain scenarios and they'd kind of induced conflict within the two camps and people who were part of the experiment who have been interviewed since then said that Zimbardo was very bossy in the way that he told the guards to act. So they just did what they were told. They thought it was part of the experiment. It's, it's just a sticky area. And it's interesting when you read a book like this and, and these very famous experiments are just taken apart in wise and, and smart and rational manner. I'd, I'd very much suggest, if you don't even read the book, just have a look into that, just so you can understand that like sometimes the results of experiments are going to be skewed and it is going to be on purpose. And people probably know full well what they're doing because, let's face it, I don't think psychologists or scientists want to be right any less than we want to be right about things it takes quite a lot of humility to be able to one admit that you were wrong and two to actually admit publicly that you're wrong especially if you're meant to be this famous kind of like world-changing psychologist i'm sure it's even harder for them with that reputation on the line but that doesn't mean that we can't forego our reputations in the name of truth i think that's the thing I, I try my very best on this podcast that if I'm wrong about something, just to come out with it straight away and say that I was wrong because no one likes a smart ass.
No one likes someone who thinks they're right all the time. But back to the book, but because I've just digressed then, let's have a little chat about Nazis, right? No one really likes Nazis, do they? There were a lot of them, though. And if you think about it logically, would you hate every Nazi you ever met? It's a weird question to think about, right? Because instantly you're like, well, obviously I hate Nazis. They're Nazis. Well, there's a very famous story, and you'll definitely know of this, that the Brits and the Germans stopped on Christmas Day to play football against each other. And Rutger Bremen talks about this in, in the book. And he, he quotes a letter that someone wrote to their parents. And he says, just you think, while you were eating your turkey... I was out talking and shaking hands with the very men I'd been trying to kill a few hours before. That is actually a bit mental, isn't it? And it goes further than that. Apparently, after this, they tried to sustain the peace. Thousands of soldiers were passing letters across the line saying, be on guard tomorrow. Uh, General's coming to visit our position, so we're going to have to fire. And they would send like similar letters back and they'd say, don't worry, we'll remain your comrades. If we are forced to fire, we're going to aim too high. And only 10% of people who died in the World War were killed of a bullet wound. Most of the killing was done from a distance. Now, I'm obviously not condoning killing. I think maybe... Well, I'd be ashamed, I'd be pretty sad if you thought that of me. But we'll carry on. 70% were killed by mortars. And what Rutger Bremen found is that most people in wars are killed from a distance. Because if you were to put someone in front of someone they would not be able to pull the trigger. And I think that would stand for 99.9% of the world. So we could say maybe the vast majority. And he looks into how you indoctrinate people and how the Nazis were indoctrinated. If you want to think that the Nazis were in power from what, like the 1930s, I think. That, that could be wrong, but that's the day that stands out to me. For about 10 years, or 9 years before the war, all of their media was pointed towards Nazi propaganda. Nine years. You you cannot say that with nine years of coercion and like constant bombardment from the media sources that you wouldn't be a little bit radicalised by that. People in England become racist if they read The Sun. I mean, obviously they don't become racist if they read The Sun, but if you read something like any sort of tabloid that kind of forces this like heavy right wing agenda, then it won't take you long to take that information as gospel and maybe be a little bit radicalized. I think humans are quite malleable when it comes to that. Like we, we can be moved into positions that we wouldn't actually originally think that we would want to be in. And if you don't believe me, just think about the fact so many people take pictures of their food nowadays and no one did that before. Or people video themselves unloading the dishwasher or doing the washing up because they've been conditioned by Instagram into thinking that's interesting. When, of course, that's really fucking boring. Another good way to like make people do crazy things is to give them crystal meth. When the Nazis invaded Paris in 1940, there were almost 35 million meth pills on them. Meth is a drug that notoriously makes people more aggressive. Another thing on the Nazis is that when they interviewed a lot of the prisoners of war, on, I think it was like 1945, a, a British psychologist went to Paris and interviewed a load of them. 
And they said that, no, 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 we weren't Nazis. Nazi propaganda started about 10 miles back from the front line. All we were doing was protecting our friends. And humans are very groupish. And let's face it, if you were, by your own sort of free will or against your free will, put on the front line with all your mates or people from your country, you're going to want to protect them, aren't you? It's just an interesting way of looking at war and conflict. And I really do suggest that you have a look at this, mainly because I want you to believe me and don't believe that I'm a Nazi sympathiser, more I'm just a human sympathiser. But it's neither here nor there. The book's good. You can read this part or you can have a look at like why some people are bad and it's not for the reasons that we think they are. There are places in the world where things are going a little bit better. And we're moving from Nazis to Norway. Now, I've been to Norway. It's a pretty cool country. I went to Trolltunga with my sister a couple of years ago. Bag and holiday. Highly recommend going to Norway. Norway's political kind of strategy is very liberal and is very open. Uh, it helps that they've got a lot of money, but they really value society. I feel like in, in the UK, we're more like, right, push this whole self-starter attitude. Whereas in Norway, they're like, hey, let's look after our people and, and do good. Of course, their taxes are higher, but... Here's the thing about taxes, they pay for the shit that you don't even realise that you use every day. So, I mean, they're kind of useful. The book, he looks at the way that the prisons work over there. And prisons in different parts of the world all run in very different ways. And Norway seems pretty unique in the way that they do things there. It's not necessarily that it seems like a little bit of a holiday camp, but it does kind of seem a little bit like a holiday camp. For reformation, not for punishment. It's about making people... Not better prisoners, but better members of society. And it's kind of about removing the incentive of being bad through education and proper policies for reform. So some of the prisoners will literally go on an island. It's not quite like Alcatraz. It's like an actual island dedicated to the prison. It has tennis courts and shit like that. But they'll go off the prison, they'll go to work, and then they come back into the prison. But the whole sort of aim of it is to reform people as opposed to punishing them. I think that's a really nice way of looking at it. Because one or, or two bad decisions can really fuck up your life, right? And You never know what has forced some people into their life of crime. And I haven't always been this like compassionate towards people in those positions, but I think naturally as you kind of learn about this stuff, it's easy to become slightly more compassionate. And it seems to be working for Norway. In like 2011, there was an, like a quite a pretty bad extremist attack by this guy called Anders Breivik. Sounds like a douchebag. Um, but in the response to the attack, the prime minister didn't say that he was going to close down on borders or anything like that. It was the response is more democracy, more openness and more humanity. And I think putting faith in humanity seems to be working pretty well for Norway. Have a look at the prisons. If if you're curious on this, have a look at the prisons in Norway and, and see what you think and, and see how it differs to the documentaries you see of, of US prisons. Because I've literally just had a quick Google then and you can see the prisons. It's like a university halls, the way I'm looking at it. The outside of the building's nice. The inside's good. This bloke's got a laptop. Um, it says Norway's facilities is the, about the rehabilitation and reintegration of its prisoners into society. Um, 
these prisoners accepting caring and empathetic approach has paved its way for the prisoners into becoming fine citizens, supporting their country's economy. But the unfortunate catch here is it does actually cost about three times more to have someone in prison in Norway than it does in, say, the United States. Is prison about money? I guess the bottom line, probably, because criminals cost the state money. But putting more money into the prisons seems to be working in Norway. And I think in the book he speaks of about, it takes about five years for them to get that return in terms of the like the contribution to the economy each prisoner would make upon leaving prison as a reformed individual. Whereas in the States, people are kept in prison for years. I think in Norway, it's about eight months. And then in the United States, I'm just Googling this. This is a live Googling. Uh, 2.6 years. So what is that? Three times as much. So it costs you three times as much to be in prison to this day in Norway than it would in the States. So I guess it actually costs the same, really. They're just putting more money into the initial rehabilitation of these individual criminals, and it seems to be working pretty well for them. I think Norway is quite a good country to look at in general for most things. I think the Scandinavian countries seem to be doing something right. They have some of the happiest people in the world in their countries, and there's probably a reason for that. And I think this like dependence on the state, most countries in the West see that as quite a negative thing. But if we are going to have a state, like we might as well make them a useful one who do kind things. Universal basic income is quite a nice idea to, to have a look into. And this came up in his first book, Utopia for Realists. Universal basic income is the idea that government will just give everybody some money every month. The idea is that it takes pressure off paying rent, paying bills, paying all this stuff, and it gives people a little bit of free income. And with that sort of alleviation of stress becomes this newfound sense of creativity, this newfound sense of like freedom, and they do more, which actually ends up contributing more to the economy. So before I wrap this podcast up, because there is, there's a lot of information in humankind it is about 400 odd pages long so there would have been a lot to talk about i feel like i've waffled quite a bit in this podcast but in pursuit of not being a perfectionist i'm not going to go back and change anything just going to talk about contact theory and then it wraps up you can get on with your day contact theory is essentially the idea that contact between two opposing groups reduces friction it reduces like intolerance and increases the way that people sort of see each other as equals and acceptance. And let's face it, it's easy to think that we live in a world full of division. We do. You can be different genders. You can be different race. You can have different like political views, different religious views. You can be different in about a million and one ways to everyone else. Being different doesn't mean you have to be intolerant. I think it's a wholly good idea to accept that we as humans are individuals and we are different to each other in lots of different ways. And that is okay. And like it's probably quite a good thing as well because it allows for a bit more diversity. And if you've read uh, Rebel Ideas by Matthew Syed, you can see that like the different ways in which people think and different ways in which they do think when they come together as a group allows for a broader scope of intelligence. This whole contact theory thing means that the more you see people from the other groups, the more tolerant you are, the more accepting you are. And it changes you as a person. Because people, like, there's studies to say that people with a diverse group of friends are more tolerant towards strangers. 
And this whole contact thing is contagious. So if you were to see a neighbour getting along with someone else, it makes you rethink your own biases. So even if you are not one of those people who is really judgmental of other groups of people, it would be a good idea to be seen communicating with people from other groups because you might just make someone else rethink their own biases and their own biases could be making them quite a twat. And there's a really nice quote from Mark Twain. He says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry and narrow-mindedness. And I would definitely agree with Mark Twain there, but I would just say as an expansion on that, that this book would make you a little bit more open-minded, a little bit less of a bigot and a little bit less prejudgmental, prejudice, a little bit less prejudice towards people. And I just mean people on a whole, like the whole of the human race. I honestly used to think that everyone was a piece of shit. I've read this book and I've completely changed my mind. And I'm so willing to admit now that I am wrong. The evidence that I've been sort of presented now, without making a non-regressive prediction, has led me to the conclusion that human beings are all right. So, the fact that I used to think you were all pieces of shit, me included, I'm sorry for that. I was wrong. Maybe some of you are, but probably most of you aren't. And that's the important thing. We have to go off the majority here. But to summarise, this book is essentially for anyone who has that little doubt about humanity and who does think, oh my God, things are terrible now, people are pretty terrible. I don't know if this is ever going to get better. We should aim to be rationally optimistic about things because I, I, I truly believe that will make your life better. Being able to look at the facts and be like, oh, actually, yeah, things are going, going in the right direction. Progress is being made in all sort of facets of life. Things are actually looking up. I didn't know that. I now do know that, and my life seems to be a little bit better. I think education is the key to gratitude, as opposed to just writing down what you're grateful for. That's a complete side note there, but I do feel like I'm more grateful for life and the things within it now that I'm a little bit more optimistic about the way the world is going. So that is positive news. The other positive news is my other podcast will be better than this one. I do worry that I waffled a little bit. That could just be me. If it's not, soz, there'll be other podcasts. They'll be way better. Sure of it. You're all absolute legends. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to read the book. And if anything piqued your interest in this podcast, follow your curiosity. Have a little Google. Pick up the book. Go get the book out from a library. Who knows? I don't care where you get your book from. Just get curious and read. I love you. Goodbye.